0: This is another episode of The News Brothers. I'm John Chancellor Marshall. And I'm
1: Scott R. Murrow Blakeman. Great to be back, and and John and I love to talk about uh, the news, and uh, today we're going to tell you all about the news, oh boy but the year was 1998 because something very important happened uh, in both John and, and my careers.
0: Yeah, it was, it, it's called The Monkey's Paw. It's uh, an unknown but very important part of entertainment, comedy development.
1: I think it started um, back in, right around January 1998, uh, Randy Credico, a uh, comedian who we've both worked with many times over the years, and you could do a whole show just about him, very interesting character who's run for public office and a great activist, but he uh, lived not far from there, and somehow what used to be called the lion's head on um, right next to the famed Stonewall Inn, the famed site of uh, the Stonewall Uprising and a, a major figure of the gay liberation movement. Uh, so that would be on uh, Christopher Street, I guess, then? and Yeah. And uh, The Lion's Head was a big hangout for writers, and I believe after that it became The Monkey's Paw. And... Uh, John and I worked there for a while there. The shows ran from Wednesday to Sunday, and they were pretty impromptu sometimes too, weren't they?
0: Yeah, it was uh, whoever was there and wanted to be in the show, they could do it.
1: Who were some of those people?
0: Colin Quinn, Lewis Black, any other big names? Um...
1: Well, we did have, I don't know if they ever performed, but I remember sitting in the bar with Grandpa Al Lewis and Professor Erwin Corey, uh, and I imagine... Yeah,
0: we were part of Grandpa Al's uh, campaign for governor, because his campaign headquarters was at the monkey's paw. (laughs) Right.
1: And he would always be sitting right by the door and and greeting everyone. and uh, So that was a show in itself, sitting at that table with Erwin and and Grandpa. They were talking about, remember we worked together in 1927? And uh, and then Jackie Mason came in one night. He didn't go on. But, you know, Randy just knows people from all walks of life. So Jackie Mason came in, former police commissioner Howard Safer, uh, all these people... uh, um, But it was very, not just the people dropping in, it was impromptu, but remember that time you just sort of put together a show, you crowd some NYU students on the street?
0: Yeah, we would go out and get the audience.
1: Yeah, well, it's a great neighborhood for that, it's so, even today, it's such a busy hub of people, of tourists and college students and locals, and literally we had done a couple of shows and... John stepped out and saw a bunch of NYU students, and we brought him in. And we just did another show, you know. So it was like the Mickey Rooney, let's put on a show, Judy, you know. And um, but we had it was great, and I mean there were many great stories. I do you, I know John, you tell the story a lot about a very interesting audience that you had a face one night.
0: The one from Australia.
1: Well, the the, the sort of the threatening
0: person the uh oh yeah yeah there was a there was a, a russian mobster who didn't speak english and his girlfriend kept saying make me laugh make me laugh and i said i don't care about making you laugh i want to make sure that i have uh full the skin where bullet holes might have been. (laughs) I said, I want to read in the paper tomorrow, John Marshall didn't die last night. (laughs) I mean, the stakes were a little bit different from making someone laugh.
1: Didn't you notice that you could see the gun?
0: Oh, Yeah. I could see the guy's gun strapped to him. And I went up to him, and he was bald and Russian, didn't speak English, and I said, I see that we meet again, Mr. Bond. (laughs) And the guy and his girlfriend, they loved me because I was making them... To them, I was making them look good. I thought I was making fun of them. The uh, the big thing that I did was I stepped out and I took a risk. If I had said something about them and they got mad, it would have been a very different story. But they knew they were at a comedy show And I think they just thought they were supposed to laugh at everything, even the things they didn't understand.
1: Well, you really handled it so well in a split second, because like you said, if you'd gone a different way as some other comedians might have, not the audience members, you want to get angry.
0: Yeah, I realized right away they weren't going to get angry. They were thrilled.
1: Yeah, they like to be talked about. Because know,
0: so. I I made them the focus.
1: Yeah. It was hard not to be the focus, too, with a gun strapped to your leg, too. But, yeah. But it's amazing your composure through all that, you know. Yeah. Um,
0: That's one of the high points of my p- performing career.
1: Yeah, well, if you can make it in that situation, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there were, yeah, there were just a lot of great nights there. And as John said, we'd have drop-ins. You never really knew. And Lewis Black at the time was doing his one-man show called Black Humor at the Cherry Lane Theater a few blocks away. And when that was over, he'd always come by. That was his first one-man show. And Colin Quinn was doing the Weekend Update on SNL. Yeah,
0: he had just started it. And uh, I took, I had taken my first vacation in 10 years. I went to Spain. And when I came back, Colin had taken over Weekend Update. It it was by magic. (laughs) And then I uh, wrote (coughs) for him. He didn't have a staff, or he had a staff, but They, I don't know, they dismissed the staff or they got rid of it Hmm. because he didn't have any regular writers. So I was writing for Colin and the first time I did it, I sent him three jokes and he did one on Weekend update. The next week I sent three jokes and I got nothing on TV. And the next week I sent three jokes and got nothing. So finally I said to Colin, What do I have to do? You know, you liked my first batch. And he said, John, most people send me 40 or 50 jokes. Well, from then on, I never went below fifty. Hmm.
1: It was a pretty good track record to get one, out of, <laughs> one out of the first three, and then but, but then, yeah, and then you continued having more
0: uh, on the show, and yeah, I I had a lot for uh, Colin on SNL. And some weeks I would have two jokes. Well, there's only 15 jokes, so I had a pretty high percentage. And uh, I started playing with... He's uh, looking behind him, and there's a picture, a news picture, and he would have a funny caption to go with it. And I did that over and over, and I found that that was uh, a key to getting my stuff on because nobody else was doing that. I always told people, especially when I had students, when I had uh, a comedy writing class, and I said, "If if you can do something and nobody else has it, you can become indispensable. The thing that you need to do any kind of comedy, whether it's stand-up or improv or sketch, you have to have freedom. You have to have the freedom to do what... It occurs to you, and you have to do it pretty close to the moment that you figure out what it is. And the master of that, in a stand-up sense, aside from you, was Dan, Mm. Dan Vitale. And I used to not know how he how he figured out what was coming next, because he seemed to be all over the place, but he wasn't. He had a method, and he stuck to it. And I've seen people in movies and TV doing stand-up, And my favorite one that I ever saw uh, that way was Richard Pryor. And Dan was the closest in real life to a comedian like that that I knew. I mean, Dan had, let's say, Dan had issues, and he was... He went to rehab something like six or seven times. He uh created with me we collaborated on a one-man show about Dan's experience uh going to rehab with uh these Franciscan friars or whoever they were, and uh There was a guy named Father Bernie. (laughs) That was his actual name. Yeah, that was his name. (laughs) And Dan imitated Father Bernie. And no one had ever seen Father Bernie, but he knew his imitation was uh, exact. And he would say, Daniel, I see you sitting in those ill-fitting... Sweatpants, and you disgust me.
1: (laughs) Interesting bedside manner. (laughs) Yeah,
0: he he had this way of talking to Dan that made Dan look bad. And Dan loved it. I mean, it was so funny. (laughs) And so a very big part of his one-man show was putting another man you know, so it was really a two man show. Of Father Bernie. I will never forget that. I feel like I know Father Bernie because of Dan's portrayal.
1: Yeah, that no, was a great show and and uh, uh but it it's interesting getting back to Dan to remind you of prior and he and we all stayed. Whenever we you know, if I went on at eight thirty and Dan went up I knew I wasn't going home, and and I, I knew right. Dan wanted us to be there, but I wanted to be there because, like you said, you could see him a hundred times, and it would always seem different, or there were nights he'd get up there, and you really were convinced, oh, he really doesn't want to be up there. He, Where is he going to go with it? And it always, like you said, there was a, a method to all of it, and he always...
0: Well, you know, I saw Dan... Uh... I'm convinced I saw him bomb on purpose and start a set where he got no laughs. And you know what it's like to stand in front of people trying to be funny and you're getting nothing. You're getting no response. And a lot of people, including me, can't stand that. You want to hear people laughing. Well, Dan would stand there. It was as if he was saying, I can wait. I got enough material. I'll just talk. And he would talk for 20 minutes. And then eventually somebody would laugh. And then he would kill. (laughs) I mean...
1: You think he actually planned that like and is
0: Well, I think so. I mean I think that I think that Dan needed a challenge besides just performing. I think Richard Pryor had the same thing. He wanted to overcome something so that you could see where he started and where he finished. And some of it wasn't funny at all. I saw Richard Pryor on Johnny Carson once, talking about how he did a show where he got no laughs. And I thought, later on, I thought, it's really brave because it hurts. Oh, yeah. If you if you get no positive response at all, it's really hard to stand there and continue talking, and you can't say, "Oh, now let me give you some of my ideas on mathematics." Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. You have to stay a comedian. You can't just
1: play the piano or no.
0: Like you it's you're not a variety show.
1: Yeah. You're a
0: comedian. No,
1: and the hardest thing, too, is when you're getting nothing back, your mind literally shuts down. It's not like you're still, oh, I feel funny, I'll do this or that. You almost always feel like I have nothing more to say and what's the point? So for someone like Dan or anyone to rise above that, especially if he planned it that way to see how he could escape from it, it's a hard thing to do and then to kill after
0: all that. Yeah, well, it's like, Okay, so I have died. For twenty minutes—that's a long time. Twenty minutes. It's a whole
1: set in many, you know, clubs. Yeah,
0: it's a. But that's what Dan would do. And I used to marvel at it. Hi. Are you finished eating? What? Are you finished eating? Yes. To get this
1: thing out. Okay. okay sorry, sorry. Oh,
0: sure. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm sure. Don't take your phone off. Your phone. Yeah. Dan did things that it's very hard to want to do. Everybody I knew who had been doing comedy for five years, six years, they had a set that they didn't deviate from. And they did the same set no matter what <laughs> the response was.
1: He just plowed through it.
0: Yeah, Dan didn't do that. Yeah, Dan was entertaining himself. And the one area where he was really good to himself was in doing something that he respected. He did a stand-up that he himself wanted to see somebody do. And uh, he told me one day some of his trade secrets and things that he did live And I thought it was astounding. I mean, he became my mentor, and I learned a lot about stand-up from him.
1: So there really was um, some people might think he's just getting up there and winging it and and uncontrolled, but it was he really the opposite. He never winged it. Yeah.
0: It's, I mean, that's that's what people think. Yeah. But he he had an idea of what he wanted to do. He might might know, I want to hit this point, this point, and this point, but you'd see him two times in a row, and he would do the same bits, but the order would be different, the emphasis would be different. You know, that's what an artist does. That's the way jazz people do improvisation on a saxophone or the piano or something. And I thought it was very interesting that at the Monkey's Paw, we had uh, Cecil Taylor, right, right. an avant-garde piano player who's definitely you know, considered one of the all-time greats. I saw him play with his trio at Fat Tuesday. Mm. But I really saw him at the Monkey's Paw where he went to drink. (laughs) He didn't play.
1: Yeah.
0: And he loved Dan. And he would just talk to Dan By the bar. I used to have experiences like that. I would go to the Westway Cafe Mm -hmm. with Dan. And he would be the funniest person that I had ever heard. (laughs) And I would think to myself, I'm sitting with one of the best comedians in the world. And he's performing for me.
1: Yeah, but not all comedians are like that. Even the funniest on stage might be just kind of so-so in a booth, but Dan is funny wherever he is.
0: Well, Dan Dan was a funny person. He didn't just have a funny act. There are some people who are great comedians. I read an interview with Jack Benny, and it was in the 70s, And he said, I don't know how to be funny at a party. Hmm. He said, it's a talent I don't have. He said, Groucho can be funny anywhere. And that's his thing.
1: Hmm.
0: I mean, I don't think one is more valuable than another. But, you know, sometimes... One is more fun.
1: It's just so rare, like you say, to be able to do both like Dan and but we did. We all stayed and again whenever however early he went on the show you there was no thought of leaving Because and, and, it really was Dan up there. I mean, even though there's a whole art to it and, and how incredible he was, but it was whatever he was going through, it would sort of come out on stage and there were ups and downs in his personal life when we were there and We saw all that. Well,
0: he did things uh, once. I guess it was in between shows, and Dan was sitting there by himself at a table, an empty table. And I came in, and I was very happy to have uh, Dan all to myself to see what he was going to say. So I sat down next to him, and he looks at me and he says, you have no right to judge me. You have the right to kill me, but you have no right to judge me. And then he looked at the table and that was it. That was the end of the encounter. Hmm. And I got up and left. Hmm. Because I I didn't see how I could top that. Yeah. And Dan had been planning that, obviously. He probably thought to himself, when John gets here, I'm going to do my scene from Apocalypse Now. He
1: hmm. said maybe he had that Brando. He did sort of have a little bit of that Brando sort of vibe going, probably sitting at a table by himself. Yeah. Too. Uh, I mean,
0: if you can entertain yourself to the same degree that you can entertain other people, that's when they start saying you're a genius.
1: Well, that's really almost the great key to being a great comedian. It's not sitting in the back of the room and watching other comedians and saying, I got to be like them because that's what people are laughing at. It's like you say to make yourself laugh and to do what you want to do and do the kind of material you want to hear and then you're being true to yourself and that's the recipe for greatness.
0: Yeah. I mean, Dan was self-destructive in many ways. But the one area where he was always good to himself was in the area of comedy. And I think... He just, unless he was bombing, which he did, and like I said, I think he did it on purpose. Sometimes. Other times, you know, he could bomb or kill, depending on whatever. Yeah. But you would go with him. There would be a flow you know he'd be up, and then he would go into a trough, and then he'd come back up and you were you were you were as much watching a writer decide what he wanted to present as much as oh, I'm gonna watch this comedian and see if it's funny." Well,
1: that's why we always watched and stuck around and however late it was because it was always worth sticking around to to watch Dan. Yeah. I
0: mean, I used to see Lewis Black and Colin standing in the back watching Dan. You don't do that unless you think you have something to learn.
1: Dan, getting back to Dan Vitale, there was a great night when we also had some very interesting people would show up in the audience and because again it was in such a centrally located part of Greenwich Village and Christopher Street and 7th Avenue and Sheridan Square and um, but someone came in from Mr. Rogers neighborhood I remember
0: yeah Uh, and she was talking to Dan and she clearly loved what he was doing and uh, he didn't know who she was, which I think made her uh, happy because nobody was sucking up to her. And there were a lot of people that came by. There was the one woman who claims that. She was a character that was in a Bob Dylan song. Hmm. I remember her, yeah. And she said, he has a lyric where he says, She wrote me a letter, and she wrote it so kind. She told me everything that was in her mind. (laughs) And... I loved hearing that story, but I thought there's no way that even though if this woman knew Dylan or she was she had found a way to say something at a bar to make people pay attention to her, she could have been lying.
1: Yeah, there was no name. It was just sort of writing a letter and. But it was just fun, the people... It just wasn't the typical people coming through and... and
0: no, it wasn't a typical audience and it wasn't uh, typical people coming through.
1: And it. we were trying to figure out how long it lasted. I don't think it, it only lasted for a part of 1998. I mean, um, and I don't mm. quite remember what ended it, but I will say that I, I remember saying, and it was totally true. You would say this, and we would all say this at that moment. This was the best comedy show in the yeah. city,
0: yeah, and on any it's given true. night it's really true i mean you you would you would watch uh Lewis Black and Colin would perform back to back. they didn't do that anywhere else they didn't do it at the comic strip they didn't do it at the comedy cellar right. they did it at the monkey's paw and the monkey's paw was a comedy show that was run by comedians four comedians
1: it was all we were all different i mean it was such a, a diverse show but just the you know people knew it was funny and smart and that, that set the tone from the beginning. So whoever was there, whatever background they were, they, they liked it and got it. And so uh, That's the thing.
0: I mean, you want to perform for an audience that understands you. And that's what the Monkey's Paw was.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about it today. Uh, taking everybody back to the 1998, yep. the Monkey's Paw and with Greats like Dan Vitale and Randy Credico and Colin Quinn, Lewis Black, and and the News Brothers.
0: I'm John Chancellor Marshall.
1: And I'm Scott R. Murrow Blakeman.